Hello out there in podcast land. It's me, David Robertson. And it's me, Christopher Carter. And it's us, the Religious Studies Project. Your friendly neighborhood Religious (laughs) Studies Project. (laughs) Yeah, this week, apparently sponsored by Marvel. No, we're not. Not at all. Although Um, we would take it. Yeah. (laughs) If you're listening from Marvel. If you want to sign up for Patreon. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, superheroes as uh, we've done that before. We can can easily set you up a podcast. We're not doing that this week. Um, As you can tell, Chris and I are giddy with uh, coffee and work. But what we have got for you is a, love, a hug, a hugging guru in this interview with Marianne Kvortrup Fibiger, recorded by Sammy Bishop at the EASR earlier this year. And the title is The Hugging Guru, AMA and Transnationalism. So I'm going to just pass straight over to Sammy and Marianne. Hello, I'm Sammy Bishop. I'm here at the EASR conference in Burn. I am here with Marianne Quartrup Fubiger, who is Associate Professor at Aarhus University. So thank you very much for joining us. Oh, thank you for that I allowed to come here and, and talk about my subject matter. How's your conference going so far? Oh, great. There's a lot of good panels and uh, a lot of good, uh, good key- keynotes. And I think you can see how uh, religion and the way that we are talking about religion is, is changing. And I think that's a really good thing. Okay, so your um, current research is focusing on AMA, the hugging guru. Sure, sure, yeah. Okay, so for the, those people who aren't so familiar with it, could yeah. you just tell us a bit about who AMA is? Today she's a, a transnational guru. She, she was born in 1953 in uh, Kerala, uh, which is in South India, and uh, she was a, a fisher. Uh, she was, is from the, the fisherman class, you know, a low-caste Hindu family. And she grew up and she had, this is very typical that you look on her story in a retrospective way. And there she has some special abilities all the way that, the way she did things all the way back to when she was around nine years old. And this has just been developing. So you can talk about her going from being a very local girl with special abilities becoming what you will say within the Hindu tradition, a kind of a shakti um, a representative, meaning that she has some kind of special female energy, uh, which is are, are related to uh, the goddesses, which can incarnate in, in, in people. And from that, she becomes a local guru you can go to and ask uh, questions. But also, and that is the main thing about her, she is also giving healing hugs. And from there, you know, it developed. Uh, she developed the devotees around her, uh, her became uh, more until she's also um, became a guru for Western devotees. And that is where we are now. And, and, and what the organization around her called Mom is, is uh, writing on the webpage. Please look into that. It's really interesting to read. She has been giving 35 million hawks all around the world. So what is interesting is that she, she's appealing both to European Americans. She's still appealing also to local Hindus, as well as national, as she's also uh, appealing to middle-class uh, uh, Hindus from all over India and even Indians living in diaspora. So she's a trans-local or transnational global guru of today. And when it comes to these different groups of devotees, mm-hmm. um, what's the main appeal? Is that uh, different appeals for different groups? And does she pitch her message differently? 
Yeah, it's it's, uh, and that's what you always uh, answer as a researcher. It's a both and. <laughs> so in 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 one way, she is um, she's saying the same things. The ears that hears differs. So I think that uh, what she says translated, interpreted in different ways. If you uh, look on Indians, local Indians, transnational Indians, and uh, European. American devotees. And that is what is interesting, that she can say something that in some ways goes into the mind or the brain and the heart to devotees from all over the world. And what I think, and that is one of my theses is that she, uh, or uh, hypothesis is that she is balancing between being very traditional, a Bhakti Guru, where she has a special devotionalism related to her, but also, and then she has a kind of authenticity, you know, it's very open how you can see she is a Indian guru. And on the other hand, she has universal messages. And also that she's a woman, I think that's important. And she has this idea that she herself is incarnating a message Uh, she is uh, incarnating what she thinks is the main way of understanding religion, namely love. She says religion is love, my religion is love. And she thinks that she should be acting accordingly. So that's why she's also, you know, giving these uh, hugs, which should be healing both the person that she heals, but, and that is very important in relation to the way we understand the world today, she will also heal the world, which is bleeding, as she said. So she also have this kind of very universal uh, message that appeals to everyone. And if when we are talking about this conference, you can hear how many who is um, referring to how climate changes the Anthropocene, that it is the Uh, human beings in the world who are the main reason for why the climate changes are so rapidly uh, going uh, the wrong way. And she is, she's uh, talking into that kind of discourse with, which, you know, everybody thinks is important. And you mentioned briefly there the uh, gendered nature of her message and the name Amma obviously meaning mother. Uh, could you say a, mi- a bit more about that, maybe particularly regarding the climate change aspect as well? Yeah, you you can talk about this being a female or representative of a kind of female energy on different levels. Uh, you can talk about it in relation to a Devi worship, the goddess worship, where the goddess is incarnated in a person in the world. Someone thinks she is like that, and then she's a Devi, and then they called her Devi, Amaitana uh, Dharmayi, which is her name. Uh, and sometimes she's Mata, mother, which um, devotees are in, been interviewed say she is like a mother to us, you know. And she talks about her devotees as her children she wants to take care of. And that is, you know, what you can do being a, a female. In another perspective, she's also related to Mother Earth, you know, that being a female, she is kind of entangled in the understanding of the Earth as a mother, who is the main reason for uh, for for life on Earth. And on the other hand, is also a mother who is bleeding. She can be inscribed in different ways on of understanding what a female or the female 
can do in relation to also to appealing to people in another way that if it was a meal. And just thinking about her representing different things as well in this mm. very kind of international span that she has. You you mentioned in your presentation yesterday how she's been representing Hinduism sure. at the yeah. UN. Yeah. Could you say a bit more about that? And the- it was back in 2010 where she was in, 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 invited to the United Nations. And, uh, um, and maybe she didn't play, you know, the major role there, but she was... Um, she was uh, invited. Uh, there was also a, a speech kind of uh, greeted that she gave her uh, the time to, to, to come and, and represent uh, Hinduism there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there was uh, a man, Mr. Dozai. He was, he's the representative for public and private partnership in New York. And in the end of his talk, he said, what you, you do bring happiness to people. You are truly a saint. This is interesting because he is using the notion of the concept saint, which is having also Christian connotations. Mm. So she, in that way, she was inscribed in a Christian or in a more universal uh, understanding of uh, of her. You know, she was inscribed. She can be part of all kinds of denominations and relations to, to to the world. So taking it down to your current research at the moment, as I mm. understand it, mm. it's been on her ashram in Kerala. Mm-hmm. Um, so could you tell us a bit about the groups of people who were there and kind of what goes on there? Uh, her, Kerala, uh, her ashram in Kerala, it's called uh, Amritapuri. And I was uh, visiting the first time in, all the way back in 2006, 2007, where I did field work uh, in Kerala about uh, goddess worship. And I thought, I, I, I need to go there. And I was kind of... Um, struck by the way it was organized because it was organized by European American devotees mm. and was kind of well you know is it a new way of colonizing uh, here not the land but the tradition and was going to have a hawk I, I need to see what is she doing you know didn't feel that much I must admit but then I should take a kind of a token you know you take a token and um, you uh, are queuing up and I was set to queue up. There was two queues, one for the Indians and one for European Americans. Mm. And I said, no, we can't do like this. But it seems like the, the Indians actually didn't mind. And what I saw, I was also um, seeing how she was doing very big darshan, uh, darshans uh, where, you know, 40,000 people each came, also in India. And I saw, you know, all the how the European American devotees was organizing everything and they were sitting in, in front in white gowns when all the different Hindus were sitting in the back. You know, and then I was thinking about, you know, how come it is like that? Is it a good or, or bad thing for, for the traditional zone in, in, in India? And what I can see today <laughs> is that this kind of translation, you know, that the European American devotees is trying to translate the local Indian uh, tradition to a more global one is now appealing to the growing Indian middle class in India, which is really interesting. And it it has not only to do uh, with uh, uh, guru worship or guruism, but it also has to do with the relationship between what we can call, it's wrong to call it, between East and West. And, And what you can see is that it's an example of a religious dynamic, how 
it's uh, very important that uh, you understand religion not as as uh, rooted in one context, but that we follow its roots around the world. And when it's, I think it's it's uh, Clifford who says that you know you look at uh, not roots but roots, you know how it's traveling, uh, mm. and in the traveling, you know the tradition is changing. Sorry to interrupt the episode, but we just wanted to let you know to remind you about our Patreon link. Uh, the Religious Studies Project has always been free since its inception, um, but we know that there's a great problem in academia with uh, people not being paid for the work that they're expected to do, particularly early career scholars. And we at the RSP want to be part of the solution, not part of the problem. So you can help if you can spare even one pound a month um, by going to patreon.com slash Project RS and subscribing. We know that these podcasts are very useful for people who are teaching and people in their learning. So if you can help um, either by subscribing there or by making a one-off donation using the PayPal button on our website, it'd be greatly appreciated and will help us keep bringing this podcast for free and fight against exploitation in academia. But now, back to the episode. But what is interesting when it comes to the globalized world these kind of changes is not only good for, or is not only a way that the devotees in European countries understand the tradition, but now also because this uh, translation, translation of the tradition is turning back to India. Mm. And suddenly, uh, middle class Indians or Hindus who in many ways are uh, secularized and feel re, uh, uh, deconnected from the tradition that that they were, grew up in, get reconnected to the Hindu tradition again, again, and mm. so this is interesting, I think, and it's a new way of looking on how ideas is circulating very quickly and translated in such a way that the appeal is wider than you believe it would be. Uh, thinking at it, in, you know, from a a first order perspective. And I think that's interesting. Mm. And I also did um, fieldwork in Mauritius uh, among uh, Hindus there. You know, in, in Mauritius, it's a majority. Hindus are majority, but they also, in many ways, secularized, understood as, you know, um, making a, um, a compartmentalization between being uh, uh, religious and, in other ways, they are very, uh, um, very much uh, uh, secularized. Amma uh, was visiting uh, Mauritius the first time in 1987. A lot of people suddenly understood the tradition that they didn't understood any longer through her way. And also the, the European and American devotees who was traveling along with her, they were kind of reconnected to, to the Hindu tradition again. Mm. So this is, you know, a way of understanding uh, this kind of entanglement of different ways of translating or understanding and uh, uh, religion. And is a crucial example of religion is both context-related but also a very dynamic phenomenon. Yeah, yeah. And when it comes to European and American devotees sort mm-hmm. of having great influence in the organization, sure. um, do you find uh, certain people kind of laying claims to the tradition and other people critiquing the involvement of these Western devotees as well? Yeah, uh, of course you find someone who thinks that um, 
we need to take the tradition back to the Indian rootings again. Or some um, conservative Hindus thinks that she is uh, too uh, inclusive. Um, and some are also critic uh, criticizing the way that she is dealing with some of her, you know, right-hand people who are also representing the mom uh, tradition when they are doing things which is, in their perspective, not part of the Hindu tradition. So what you'll see, and it's the same when some Hindus think or are arguing that we need to get yoga back to the Hindu or Indian tradition again. Mm. So sometimes you will always, and you will always see that, you know, when things are changing, someone wants it to stop, to change, and they want to root it back in a tradition which um, uh, which can be difficult also to define. But um, so you see this kind of the way of they people want to get hold of it again and not make it open for 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 the whole world. Mm. Yeah, it seems that a lot of the discourses around it are fairly similar to the ones that happen around yoga as well. Sure, sure. Do you find it helpful comparing the two, or are there certain ways they differ? Well, yeah, yeah, you can do that. But the differences between Amma is that she's a guru, she's a person. And yoga is a phenomenon. Uh, so, I mean, it's, it's more easy to, to get hold or grab on, you know, what are the messages of a person mm. who's still alive uh, and they have a, a grab on yoga, which have been changing, uh, uh, since, uh, since it, people even don't know when it started. Do should we go back all the way to the pre-Vedic tradition when it comes to yoga or should we kind of place it in, in the Upanishadic tradition and, and things like that? So, I mean, here you can actually take her messages and you can try to decipher it and try to criticize it because it's there. Mm. I mean, and yoga is a floating, in many ways, a floating signifier. Yeah, yeah. Are there certain ways in which Amma was able to sort of claim authority as a guru? Yeah, and, and, and I think that's very important as well. So it's, it's, it's fine that you, you uh, ask me that question because on the one hand, she has this kind of universal message. Mm. On the other hand, she's very, I think, uh, very much inscribed in a, a Hindu uh, guruism, in a bhakti devotionalism. And she also understands herself as a karma yogi, you know, as a yogi who is, who is uh, acting in the world. In one perspective, she's, she's uh, inclusive. In another perspective, she's also exclusive. And that, I think, uh, this kind of balancing between inclusivism and exclusivism make her so appealing both for 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 Indians and also for uh, for European and American devotees mm. and in relation to that i think it's so interesting to to see you know i've been interviewed uh, devotees especially in in denmark where i'm from and they are telling me how they are really trying to stick to the indian tradition so in some ways and understand me correctly in some ways 
they are trying to be kind of more traditional that a lot of Hindus are uh, living in in Indian or around her ashram. They are telling me that you know they would like to um, to learn some mantras in Sanskrit. Uh, they are having a Guru Purnima where they are having a special day where they are devoted to um, to their Guru, which they do in Denmark and Germany everywhere. And I was participating in one of these Guru Purnimas, and they were very anxious to do the puja in the right manner. And because I was there, they were kind of, you know, <laughs> did we do it the right way? Or should we do it like that with flowers and things like that? So, so I mean, that is also interesting, right? So, so she, this, that she's never changing her behavior as being an Indian guru, mm. I think is important as well. And it's appealing to, to, uh, American, uh, European uh, devotees. Mm. Just to change the topic slightly mm. as well, you raised the idea there of your presence as a researcher kind of affecting the behavior of devotees slightly <laughs> yeah, as well. Yeah. Was there, I mean, like talking about research methods, was there certain problems that you came up against or could you say a bit more about that? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's always difficult just to be a fly on the wall. You know, when you are there and when you have uh, been uh, presented yourself as being a researcher and not a Amma devotee. People um, are very much concerned about concerned about you know how do we then represent the tradition mm. that you want to write about, and also you know in what way will you having a, a critical uh, point of departure or do you want kind of do it in in a way that could promote our tradition mm. and. I think it's very important as a researcher that you, you tell, you know, the reason for being there. And also, uh, I think it's very important that you, um, when you write, you write the things in relation to be a researcher. And it has to do with the big discussion about being a mega ethic or also the big discussion, you know, phenomenological relation to the tradition, which I know a lot of anthropology thinks is important that you can't, do research on something that you haven't been part of yourself. Mm. I think it's important, and uh, people could criticize that, that I I try to uh, stand three steps behind what I'm actually doing. Mm. And I think people are accepting that. I might not get all the answers that a person who will be part of, you know, the Yama group, but I get some other answers and I could put it into, and I think that's important too. Uh, that's the way I'm, I, I'm brought up uh, in, uh, in academia, that you have some kind of theoretical point of departure when looking at, at a empirical phenomenon. And I'll, I will always do that. And it can't give some backslash, but as long as you as a researcher are very clear in your mind, in the way you're writing, and also towards the one you are doing fieldwork uh, in relation to, I think you you do what you can do. Other one will disagree with that, but I think in my perspective, it's important. So going forwards as well, where do you see your research going in the future? I think it will go in in, in different uh, direction. I've always been interested in, in Hinduism diaspora. And the reason for being interested in, in, in that field particular is firstly to see, you know, how 
religion is changed in relation to the social cultural context but also because you know hinduism is so difficult to define i'm not going to tell you but i i just said anyway that i promised my students i will retire if i get to know what i'm actually <laughs> an expert in uh, but but i think it's very important that uh, hindus in diaspora is trying to put uh, some words on what is the hindu tradition you know being away from where the tradition has been part of our, of culture for for ages suddenly you try to figure out you know what do we want to keep and what do we want to leave behind and what i see and i think that's interesting both in relation to 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 hinduism but also in relation to understanding religion as a, a dynamic phenomenon so my research will keep on trying to look on hindus in diaspora but also I will. Uh, I've done a book together with one of my my um, colleagues called East Spirit. But how ideas, concept, notions are circulating between uh, what we call East and West. And what I think is is so interesting is to see also how this is changing the way that Europeans are looking on the li- their lives on the world. But in a way, and uh, I have uh, also written an article where I'm not talking about the Easternization or the process of Easternization of the West, but I'm trying to argue for a new concept called the Westernization, meaning that the Eastern concepts and notions are translated in a Western way, mm. so they give meaning also in a Western context. And I've also been researching and I would like to do a bit more about it about how Indian or Hindu tropes is getting new meanings in a European context especially uh, as an example you can talk about karma which in many ways in European uh, context is a kind of a, a feel good a notion mm. and if you compare what karma actually means in in India uh, it has totally changed also in relation to the understanding of uh, reincarnation as a, another go uh, a new possibility i think that's interesting too that's you know and you can't say that you know the way you understand reincarnation or karma is wrong it's just embedded in a new european context Would make it, it 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 possible the concept to change, so I think that's really interesting, and I, I think that's uh, so important. And but also, in the discussion of how come that notions from from uh, from Hinduism and Buddhism is not a kind of a uh, worldviews coming to Europe is not kind of now it is taking over another worldview. It is more like what a lot of people I've been interviewing. It's it's more like something a part of a new way of understanding yourself so it's not that you have to choose between your old worldview and the eastern one but you can combine it and i think it's interesting how come that concepts from from india it's much easier to be entangled or being kind of 
a floating sit- signifier that could be rooted in a Western tradition as well. Mm. So, so that's some of the things I would like to work with. And uh, there's a lot of things to do. So I hope uh, someone else will take up the, <laughs> these ideas. Yeah, I look forward to seeing yeah, that as okay. well. Okay. Marianne, thank you so much for your time. Yeah, thank you for us a lot to talk a little about something I'm really interested in, in a research perspective. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Okay. Thank you so much for that, Sammy. Great to get um, the first of your um, interviews. Uh, have we have we had the other one yet? Actually, no, no, we haven't. We haven't. Uh, good to get the first of your interviews uh, from the ESR out there. Um, lots of hugging happened at the ESR, particularly the, the Tuesday night social, where there was a, a wonderful sight of Giovanni Casario and Steve Sutcliffe and everyone. Um, Dancing to Thriller. So it was appropriate for that conference to generate an interview on hugging. I'm sorry to have missed that, but I, I have memories of many a conference involving uh, senior scholars dancing. Steve Sutcliffe again at the BASR in Wolverhampton is a particularly fond memory, but also um, Graham Harvey. The BASR hosted the EASR. It's the first time I've ever seen him with his hair down. Exactly. So maybe there's a podcast in there on the study of religion and cracking out gem moves. <laughs> sort of we're, well, in the Edinburgh semester, we're in week eight of ten. So we're nearly there, although there'll be lots of essays coming in. How's your open university semester? Just gearing term? up. Just gearing up. I'm marking the first TMA. That's what we call our assessments. Just this week. So it's... Coming thick and fast for me, but I love it. We do love it. What we also love is roundtable discussions. We've been having a lot of those um, of late, um, which was good because we had we, we had a couple of years where we didn't really have any roundtable discussions, and now they're they're coming back in thick and fast. Next week is one that was recorded in Belfast in the uh, council chamber. It was quite a, a nice mm-hmm. venue for you to be recording Very austere, it. and it's on um, it's on a controversial subject. Yes, we love controversy here at the RSP. It's entitled "New Directions in the Study of Scientology." And it was myself, Alad Thomas, um, Carol Cusack, and Stephen Gregg. And it was a, we'd been talking a long time about this project, and uh, I'm glad we finally managed to do it. And I've set up quite a, I want to say a big response. It's going to be uh, interesting. I, I won't name names until I actually get the copy uh, in my inbox, but I'm looking forward to the discussion which will inevitably follow. Exactly. And I'm sure next week we can discuss why um, the discussion that will inevitably follow is, you know, perhaps more controversial than if we've been focusing on new directions in the Church of Scotland. Yes. Probably more interesting as well. Well, it would certainly certainly be fewer celebrities involved, let's put it that way. (laughs) Anyway, listeners, um, we will wave goodbye to you for the moment. but uh, just keep checking the website. Still aware that there's plenty of wee niggles in the website. We've been flat out. I haven't had a chance to collate and deal with them. But we, we love it. And we love you. Thanks, Thanks for, listening. for listening. The Religious Studies Project is sponsored by the British Association for the Study of Religions, the North American Association for the Study of Religion, and the International Association for the History of Religions. The RSP is produced by the Religious Studies Project Association, SCIO, a Scottish charitable incorporated organisation, charity number SCO 47750. Brought to you by founders and editors-in-chief Chris Cotter and David Robertson, and our managing editor Thomas J. Coleman III. Our features are edited by Jonathan Tuckett, and our Opportunities Digest by Ella Bock. 
Podcast transcription by Helen Bradstock, with audio editing by Gregory Schneider and Samuel Ward. Social media managed by Ray Radford, and sales and marketing by Sammy Bishop. Don't forget you can support the project by using our amazon.com.co.uk and .ca links or donating at patreon.com slash projectrs. And you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Google+, YouTube, iTunes and other portals. <laughs>